Well, we are continuing. My name is Eric Santiago. I'm one of the pastors here. So if I haven't met you, uh, I'd love to. And it's just great to welcome you here today. I know we had a few visitors. So you are so very welcome. You're, you're entering into a series we've been preaching on the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels in the Bible. And uh, last week was pretty intense because actually uh, Peter... Uh, the, the disciple of Jesus identified Jesus uh, as the Messiah, the one who came to save the world, the one who'd been told for, foretold for thousands of years was going to effectively fix all of the problems uh, that Israel had. And so they were so excited. And then literally moments later, Jesus said, and that's why I now must die and then Peter rebuked him and said, you're talking crazy, man. And the truth of the matter is, and this is where I have to just sympathize with Peter, he was making no sense. Jesus didn't make sense compared to their concept. And it seems as though they would have missed all these Psalms that actually prophesied, but they didn't put two and two together. They just thought he was gonna come riding on a white horse, which he will, but not yet. So they kept expecting him to just crush the enemy, to just vanquish anyone who was against Israel, to restore the kingdom uh, of Israel. And actually, that is not the way that he was going to do it. He would do all of those things, and he would ultimately wear a crown as king of the universe. But first, he had to die and so it was very perplexing. And I can only imagine how perplexed the disciples must have been. And I think what we've been trying to do in this series called Unexpected King is recognize that we ourselves expect God, expect Jesus, expect spirituality, the kingdom heaven, to be something that it isn't. Or to appear or act or operate in a way that it doesn't. And so we have to keep bending our minds around him. We want to bend him around ours. And he's actually saying, welcome into the way I see things. And when you do, it is profound and powerful and glorious. And that is the theme that we enter into today as we begin Mark 9. So let's read in Mark 9. Just as he had given that speech about how we must take up our cross and if we're to follow him, that we must lose our life to save it. Uh, and if we try to save our lives, we'll lose it. He said, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That was that scene, that was the end of that scene which starts uh, chapter nine. Now we see in verse two, it says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. For those of you who haven't been paying attention, they are dead. And they were talking with Jesus. <laughs> and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, actually, I want to give this a little dramatic reading. Can I do this? <laughs> and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Uh, let us make three tents, uh, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
And the reason I read it like that is because in verse six, it says, for he did not know what to say. (laughs) They were terrified. He just kind of squeaks out what he says. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. This is a common theme of Jesus. Until the son of man had risen from the dead. This is interesting. He never gives a time frame when he says it before. He just says, don't tell anybody. Here he says, you can tell people, but not yet. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what is this rising from the dead might mean? And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written. It's funny because um, (laughs) that little moment and they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? They've gotten a bit sheepish in their approach at this point because Peter tried the, what are you talking about? This is crazy. Don't say it like that. And now they're questioning because they're saying like, okay, we just saw Elijah, all right? Was that what it was talking about? Because they think they've got it all figured out and they're like, okay, we're gonna ask, we're gonna use the Socratic method. We're gonna kind of ask you if we can draw this out. We're not just gonna say, okay, Jesus, Elijah came, now let's do it. They kind of start asking these questions. It's fascinating. Well, there's a ton going on in these nine verses. It's action-packed. Two dead guys show up. Jesus is transformed into this glorious supernatural being like no one has ever seen before. The audible voice of God comes crashing into the scene along with a huge cloud. Peter, James, and John are mortified just before it all disappears as quickly as it came. And Peter, true to form, just blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind in what sounds to be awkward at best, if not just kind of a ridiculous thing to say. And all of this makes this a really exciting passage to study. I don't know about you, but the big question for me is why does this happen? Why is this happening? As I mentioned earlier, we just reached a pivot point in the book of Mark. So, you know, last week I was saying, we go now from Jesus saying who he is, they finally get it, and now he pivots to what his purpose is and that he must die. He says this two more times in the book of Mark. This passage of the transfiguration, as it's called, also appears in the books of Matthew and Luke. In some ways, the purpose of what just happened here appears to be to further prove what Jesus has been saying all along. He's the Messiah. Okay, boom, there it is in living color. But it also seems the disciples, they need this. I also think, and, and, and scholars would say, Jesus needed this. Isn't that interesting? We think that God, Jesus is just kind of aloof and he's got it all figured out. In one, in one sense he does because he's also God, but, but he's a man and, and, and God affirms him a, a few key times in, in this. And, and, and it's not because it's just frivolous. It's not just part of the story. It shows you how God is meeting Jesus even in these these moments, and one thing that strikes me is God says, this is my son, listen to him. I'm thinking, don't you think after all of what he has, like the miracles and the casting out demons, the power with which he spoke, and then the disciples even acknowledge that he is God incarnate, wouldn't that make them listen to him? 
but they need to hear that. It's just like, and we need to hear, aren't you grateful that God is just so patient with these disciples? I mean, they've seen stuff we'll never see on the same level until Jesus is standing in front of us. We trust we'll see measures of the inbreaking kingdom ongoingly, but this, this is extraordinary. And they still were like, were they questioning in their hearts, do we listen to him or not? We're not, we're not really sure. God's like, let me settle that for you. Listen to him. Look at him right now. Does this convince you that you should listen to him? But again, what he was saying did not make sense to them. What God says to you won't make sense. Like it won't always make sense. I think we count on the fact that he'll be very intelligible and understandable and it all just makes sense. I love Mary's story of her own wrestle with God because it didn't make sense. Why can't, I, why can't I go on this trip? This seems good to me. Do you have that? This seems good to me. And he's like, just go to sleep. <laughs> I love that. But let's just take a step back and look at this crew on the mountaintop, Peter, James, and John. But it's interesting because by several other moments in Mark, it would appear that this is kind of the inner core of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? They were with him when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark 5. Um, he explained to them privately what it meant. And then he said the, when he said the temple would be destroyed, that happens in Mark 13. And, and then finally, they were, they were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. You'll see that later. I'm excited to preach on that passage as well. But he brought these guys into the inner circle and he wanted them to understand everything like, like no one else. And some scholars believe it's because of what they were called to do like the intensity of their ministry and their calling was such that they, they needed this. Now, it's hard to know. Any of these whys are speculative, but we look into the character of God and we look at how history unfolds, we can, we can make some interesting guesses around this. But I think there's something to that that isn't just a speculation um, because they, they, were, they were a bit rocked in their understanding of who he was when he said, and now I must die. Um, and yet they knew he was the Messiah. So he, he brought them to the mountain to reassure them, right? He, he's going, I, I get it. You're not going to, you're gonna, you're gonna be very confused. Let me give you a clarifying moment. Let me meet you in a fresh new way that will actually open your eyes, stir you and spur you. Because what God has called all of us to requires us to be encountering him actually ongoingly in order for us to really be able to lay hold of it because it's, it's difficult. This is the kindness of God. He knows we struggle to understand in, in light of what is often confusing or hard to believe. So he faithfully helps us by revealing himself and fortifying us on, on what can be a difficult road of following Jesus. I'm interested in the fact that in verse two it says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John up to the high mountain. This was days later. We had that really tough moment where he rebukes Peter in front of the disciples. And then six days go by. What were those six days? Was it just kind of awkward? <laughs> it's like, hey, Jesus, sorry about that weird thing I did. I, you know, it's like, what was that like? But it took six days, and of Peter, I imagine, and the other disciples just sitting there going, none of this adds up. And you would, you would hope that this transfiguration moment is like, you must die. And then he's like, ha ha, and then, you know, he's in glory. But it was days later, 
And I just feel like something, that, that gap is so important because often we sit in that gap, don't we? We feel like we're, we, we've understood something difficult or we're experiencing something hard and we're like, Lord, just show yourself. And he doesn't. He will. He will. I think scripture bears out that he will. But we have to keep following him. If they wouldn't have followed him up the mountain, if they wouldn't have followed him on this treacherous journey, they actually wouldn't have experienced this encounter. And sometimes we're like, this is too hard, I don't understand, and so we stop following him. And he's like, no, 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 just stay, stay with me. Stay with me, even in the midst of internal struggle. And then it says, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus don't, don't you wonder, like, why those two dead guys? There's a lot of dead guys. That, like, why not Adam? I don't know, you know. Why not Abraham? Like, what? why not just like a bunch of angels? It's obviously very intentional, but do you wonder why those guys? Um, this is very important. It's a very intentional moment. We'll get to that uh, in just a second here. But, but then it says that they were talking to him. Don't you wonder what that conversation was about? Yeah. Man, it's been hot these days. No kidding. So true. Man, my camel just about gave out. the. Other. Here's the beauty. We don't have to wonder. It doesn't say it here, but in Luke, it actually tells you what they were talking about. Did you know that? Can I just read it? Luke 9, verses 30 to 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elisha, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is extraordinary because if you care at all about what they were talking about and then this lands in the middle of the answer to that question, you go, they're talking about his death and resurrection. They're talking about his exodus, which Moses also did. Was he taking exodus tips from Moses? I don't know, but, but you realize, you know, what, you know what the big headline is here? is his death and resurrection and ascension. They were talking about the way all this was gonna go down. And so you realize he was saying back just verses prior how important it is to grasp this death piece. And here we see it again come up. They were speaking of his departure. The first departure, I don't know where he dies, or the second departure, his ascension. But either way, it was all wrapped up in the thing that we all also identify with him in. Death is the headline. This is of grave importance. I'm sorry, you see what I did there? Great, okay. My daughter's like, dad. None of it happens without death. Jesus couldn't become king without his death. He couldn't fulfill his mission and consummate his purpose without death. So it's the big headline. Jesus couldn't do it and, and neither can we. Good news, bad news. He had to die, he did, we're good. You have to die. Oh, whoa, what, wait, huh? <laughs> it doesn't land quite with the same zeal, does it? But why the dead guys? Well, let's look back at the very last two verses of the Old Testament. The way this thing is crafted is just amazing. Malachi verse four, do I have it? Ah, oh, so good. Remember, 
the law of my servant Moses, God says, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Pause there. They speculate this happened on Horeb. Isn't that wild? We know we went up to a mountain. It was Mount Horeb. Same place. The way that God tells this story with such intentional attention to detail is incredible. He says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Pause there. Elijah's been dead for 400 years when this comes. It makes no sense. They must have been like, okay, but that, you realize he's dead, right? 400 years ago. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I'm always fascinated by the last verse of the Bible because I believe it's intended to fix the biggest problem that we have, which is a breakdown of father and children relationships. You look around, you know, fatherlessness is probably, almost every problem can be attributed to fatherlessness or broken in that relationship, or brokenness in that relationship. And our brokenness with him is what all of this stems back to. And I just love, he says, that thing, that's the big problem I am going to fix. Thank you, Lord. You see it even better than we do, and you're gonna fix it. Oh, we trust you. Let us leave this in your hands. This is the end of the Old Testament that we have now seen being fulfilled actually throughout the Gospel of Mark. He's very intentional about this. And, and, and here's the interesting thing is that, well, I'll get to this in just a moment. Let's look at this. <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, uh, this next thing is just a little bit of a chart. It's not too complicated. It's just showing you how this moment is just like Moses on the Mount, on Mount Horeb. Here, Moses goes with three named persons plus, 70 el- persons plus 70 elders up the mountain. It's got scripture references. Jesus takes three disciples up the mountain. In Moses' case, it was Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Moses' skin shines when he descends from the mountain, right? You remember that? He's reflecting God's glory. Jesus is transfigured and his clothes become radiantly white. God appears in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud uh, on the mountain. God appears in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud. A voice speaks from the cloud. A voice speaks from the cloud. The people are afraid to come near Moses after he descends from the mountain. The people are astonished when they see after he descends from the mountain. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? It is. It is crazy that God repeats himself because he's going, no, I'm just gonna show you how the template of this just continues. It's just repeated. And, And Jesus the, the crazy thing about this is that why Moses and Elijah are here is because Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Moses resent, represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. This is what Jesus is fulfilling this. Jesus, it's an illustration of how the law and the prophets come together in the gospel. That's why it's those two dudes and no one else. And the other thing is, Moses reflected God's glory. 
Jesus actually radiates God's glory. Jesus is the glory of God. Up until now, Moses was the guy because who'd ever done that? Now Jesus completely trumps that moment. And he becomes, in Hebrews 1.3, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That is how this thing goes from good to great. That's how this thing completely transcends, completely transfigures what it is that we understand of who Jesus truly is. That's important for us to know. We need to understand this. We need to know that God, by his grace, revealed himself in this moment to these guys because we need that ourselves. This message of needing to die, to empty our hearts of all those things that we cling to is a difficult one. But if we do, when we do, and as we do, he meets us again and again and again. Verse six is, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter just says something, even though he's terrified and doesn't know what to say. I love that we know Peter's the one who told this story to Mark, who wrote it down. I just love Peter. (laughs) It's like, look, Mark, I just, I don't even know. I just started talking again. (laughs) He's just, he's so self-aware. It doesn't say that in the other two gospels because they wouldn't, yeah, I don't know, they wouldn't know. Um, and, And true to form, he says exactly the wrong thing. Let's stay here. Um, what's also interesting is that, you know, when Moses went to see God and said, I want to behold your glory, and he says, actually, you can't. You'll die. You'll die if you really see me. I'm going to hide you in the cleft, and I'll pass by, and you can't look at me, because you'll die. Notice here, they see God in his glory, and they do not die. Oh, this is a turn of the page, This is very unique and unusual and it actually means that something has changed. We can now behold the glory of God for our own benefit and sake and he, we will not die. We can't underestimate that. People who came into encountered God, I mean, it was the, the Ark of the Covenant. They would not look because they were, were afraid to die. And now they're terrified, but actually, boy, that's a, that's a very different thing. That they did not die means we do not die. That we will now never die because of who he is and his glory. And, and, and I love it. I mean, we love supernatural encounters uh, in this church. We need them. We absolutely need supernatural encounters. But I think what we see here is the answer is not to stay there. See, Jesus had work to do and so do we. So, so it ends as quickly as it started. We know they'll have glorious encounters again. I mean, we, we see in Pentecost in the book of Acts, you know? Um, but, but, but they don't sit there in that moment. Wouldn't you be like, oh, Lord, why did that have to end? That was like the best worship service I've ever been to. And it just ends very quickly. Was it because of the stupid thing Peter said? I don't know, maybe. But I don't think so. I think that is actually just revealing of where Peter was at. He was this unfiltered guy in that moment. And he's just like, I just want to stay here. But what, did he? I mean, he was terrified. Who knows? It's hard to say. But he wanted to build these three tabernacles. And I think it's so easy to go, let's sort of memorialize the presence of God, try to contain it, and just never leave it. And then we'll just be here all the time. 
And we know that we need to encounter God. We know that God will encounter us, but we're not intended to stay there. You know, the book of Acts, don't you think the book of Acts by one writing would just be like a series of great worship services? It's not. There are moments, there's Pentecost, and there's times where people are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I love those moments. But you know what's happening mostly in Acts? Acts! (laughs) They're just going, and they're doing what he called them to do. And guess what? That's where he meets them. He doesn't just meet them in the glory cloud. In fact, that happened. This is, you guys, the old, the old school folks would know this one. This is the Shekinah glory, you know? And, uh, and <laughs> I know there are people who are, want to get up and shout, but, which is wonderful. I love that. I love the culture of that. But actually, some of it just started to become all about that of the Shekinah dancers. And that's awesome. I, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's very easy for us to go inward and insular and just say, let's stay right here. Let's just build a nice big building and none of us will ever leave. It's part of why I'm glad we don't have a building. I mean, I want a building. My gosh, Lord, please send a building. But we're forced to just wander around and hopefully bump into people. Somebody once said, maybe you heard this, that we're like a snowball that's just rolling around Montgomery County picking up people as we go. Yeah. <laughs> Let's never lose that. Let's never lose that monument. Even if we get an address, let's keep rolling around Montgomery County and picking up people as we go. Because Jesus met them when they went, when they were on mission, when they didn't just stay holed up in three tents, when they didn't just get comfortable in their building. That's where he met them in Acts. Acts wouldn't be Acts if they just hold up in a room. They did at the beginning and then they went. Encounter is intended to reveal the risen Christ and teach us how to worship. We often, I think sometimes too, you know, what's interesting about this series of events is Jesus does not reveal himself first in glory and then say, now you must die. Right, he says, now you must die and they're all just like, whoa. Uh, what else you got? Is there something more? And, and, and I think we're a little bit the same way. It's like, well, I understand there's some difficult thing I've been asked to do, but you know, why don't you give me a little something on this? Why don't you show me something? We stand there kind of tapping our foot. Okay, I might, but you need to overwhelm me with experience in order for me to step out in obedience to what you're calling me to. But here, it's the other way around. And he's gracious to continue to reveal himself to us, though we struggle to believe. But, but here, it doesn't happen that way. Peter acknowledges Jesus as Messiah, and then he reveals himself. So if you're here this morning, and you're like, I'm, I'm tentative. Like, I know, I know a lot of stuff, or I, I kind of believe. I'm not really sure. But I need him to show me a little bit more. He's like, no, I need you to show me a little bit more. I will meet you. I will encounter you but will you step into this thing I've called you into? Will you actually just go ahead and go for it without any more to go on? I think he's saying, actually, what you have now to go on is enough. Go on it. And then I will continue to meet you on the way. But if you're sitting there, arms crossed, leaning back, you might be there for a while. Go. Go into it and expect that he will reveal himself. Our go-to theologian on this book 
Daniel Aiken says, mountaintop experiences are wonderful and we need them from time to time for spiritual nourishment and the recharging of our spiritual batteries. However, God never intended for us to stay there. He wants us down here preaching the gospel to and ministering among the hurting and suffering. He wants us living with and serving real people devastated by the ravages of the fall and of sin. As his agents of redemptive love, we go in his name and with the promise of his presence. Jesus wants to reveal himself to encourage us and give us a glimpse of his glory so that we can endure difficult things, no doubt. We must, however, believe because what following him requires of us is difficult. It's the most difficult. It's dying. But even Jesus would have seemed to benefit from this this moment. Even he would have benefited from this encounter. Because again, he's human. You know, some scholars talk about this as, and C.S. Lewis does this. Gosh, I don't even think I have the quote, but it's such a good quote. Um, he, he, he describes that as reality and this as being the other side of, of, that, of that door. What they saw, that's real reality. That's the true way that exists in eternity. And our world is just this kind of shadow and type of that. And when this moment happens and this is revealed, they're getting a glimpse not into some otherworldly thing. Oh, it is otherworldly, but it's the real world. That's what he's saying. It's so powerful to consider that that is the reality that is not here yet, but it's coming. It's coming. It continues to break in, and we trust that it will. We remain on this side, but not forever. That's what Lewis says. All right, I have a little time. We're gonna get into the second part of the scripture. It says, and when, the disciple, and when they came to the disciples after they came off the mountain, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. This is that thing of like, what is this guy? Just like Moses coming down out of that moment, they're just like, why were they greatly amazed? Well, he had just been in glory on the mountain. And he asked them, what are you arguing with, about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. (laughs) I love this. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. This is a funny scene to me. I mean, it's not funny, but it ends well, so it's funny. And Jesus is just like watching this and he's like, how long has he been this way? You know, that's what it says next. It says, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believe, for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him. And it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some manuscripts say prayer and fasting, which we will do. 
January 30th and 31st. Oh, but what's he saying there? Well, in verse 15, he comes down again off the mountain and he is glorious. There's something that draws people to him. They came running because they were amazed. I believe, and scripture bears out, that we are to be those people that spend time in the presence of God and people encounter us and they're like, what's your deal? What's your story? Something amazing about you. That's not pressure, it's opportunity. It's there for the taking. When we push into God, there's just something that transforms that is maybe transfiguration light. (laughs) That is what we are to avail ourselves of in Christ. And then out of that, go doing the things that Jesus did, but, but the disciples couldn't do it. And this is an interesting one. He answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The theologian William Lane says this, the rhetorical questions, these are rhetorical questions. He's not looking for an actual answer. The rhetorical questions express the loneliness and the anguish of the one authentic believer in a world which expresses only unbelief. Can you imagine the loneliness that Jesus would have felt. Sometimes you think you're the only one. (laughs) He literally was the only one. And that's, to tug that thread for just a moment, if you feel lonely, if you feel alienated, if you feel out of place, Jesus did way more. And he went there for you. He went there to be able to say, I've experienced that and you can follow me through it. Whatever you are experiencing in terms of loneliness and alienation, alienation and feeling like people don't get you and they don't have it, he legitimately on every level as a perfect believer experienced that. And I do think we get a little bit of angst out of Jesus here. It would have been very difficult to walk that road. Then the guy says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And I love how Jesus says, if, if, he could say so many things here, like, have you heard of what I can do? But he just says, all things are possible for one who believes. And then he says, I believe. So he says, okay, I think that's me. He says, but help my unbelief because I see a gap I do not have it all together. This is one of my favorite parts. Because Jesus doesn't say, nope, only with zero unbelief will I do this. Next, take the boy and get out of here. He doesn't. See, this is good news. It's good news for me because I struggle with unbelief. Do you? Nobody. Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Of course you do. You're human. Let me help you here. (laughs) Every single person in this room will struggle with unbelief. I don't care how spiritual you sound. Oftentimes, the more spiritual you sound, the more I think you struggle with unbelief. You're not fooling anyone. Let's not try to fool each other and let's not try to fool people that we're telling about Jesus because they'll be like, well, I'll just never get there. I'll never get to what you're talking about. That's okay. We're not there, dude. Trust me. 
We are wrestling with our own unbelief. Once again, Jesus is unexpected here because he delivers the boy. He, he helps him. And he doesn't carry on in some ceremonious way in, in the deliverance moment like he didn't do when we've seen it before. He just doesn't do it. That, that's also good news because it's not like, okay, watch him closely because what he do is super confusing. You know, what, like he, he's got this whole technique and I, I haven't gotten it down yet. And he just says, no, come out. That's it. That's all he does. But it's, but it's not just that because the disciples could have done that. What didn't they do? What didn't they get right? This is a really important one because I think if you've read that verse before, you're like, oh my gosh, so there's different kinds of demons and they come out with different things and that's not actually what it's saying. I, I, I want to bring some perspective to this. But it, it seemed like a function of their faith, right? They couldn't cast it out because it, he says faithless generation, Scholars say they'd be talking about them. He's not talking about like everybody. He's talking about his disciples. They couldn't do it because they didn't have faith. What does that mean? Because we always, oh, I don't have enough faith either. Well, we see that Jesus still moves in the midst of very little faith. And then he says, this kind only comes out by prayer. And, and I, again, I think it's like, okay, well, what's the grid? This one comes out by shouting. This one comes out if you're wearing a white suit. What is it? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> I think it's confusing because this kind doesn't mean a type of demon. So kind here is the Greek word genos or genos, genos, which is where we get the word gene. It really just means this lineage, this family, this heritage. In almost every other place in the New Testament, it's used to describe like the Syrophoenician woman. She's from a certain lineage. He's saying this family of devils comes out, again, not because you prayed the right prayer, but because you are in prayer, you are communing with Jesus, and you are depending on him to do it by his authority, and you guys just went, got it, and I'll, we're just going to go take care of this thing. He's like, no, 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 guys, you've forgotten. Go back into prayer. Go back into communing with your father. Depend on him for this work. Do that by faith, and then go and execute these things because they had done it in Mark 6. Do you remember? The 12 went out and cast out demons. What did they forget? That. It seems that. And we do. We get very pragmatic. Okay, I'll just go take care of it. No, no, no. It only happens when you commune with the Father. Fasting, it's like, is fasting in there or not? If it, if it helps, and I believe it does, to commune and depend on Jesus, then by all means, power comes through when we do these things. All right, I've got to end. <laughs> Our faith can be so great. We have 2,000 years of church history. We have the gospels. <laughs> we have each other. We have every reason to believe. We do still struggle, but let us let these things buoy us let us let them strengthen us because Jesus is asking us the same questions. Who do you say that I am? I want to show you some things. Are you willing to give up everything, die to everything to get what I have, which is eternal life? Because I, I want to show you some things. Are you willing to take that step before you have some kind of certainty or some bigger proof? 
because I want to show you some things. He's calling us by faith. I'd like to invite us to stand because in any given moment, Jesus is willing. In any given moment, Jesus wants to meet us. In any given moment, if we would only open our hearts and eyes to see, we can behold him in his glory. That's what his ascension did. I just want to read this last line by Tim Keller who said, worship is a preview of the thing that all our hearts are longing for, whether we know it or not. We seek it in art, in romance, in the arms of lovers, in our family, but it's only found truly in communing with God himself. Worship, like we'll do right now, worship is a preview of the thing that all our hearts are longing for. Can we clear the deck of our minds and hearts and go to him in faith as if he is real and what he says is true and get a preview of the thing that all our hearts are longing for, which is heaven and eternal life with him.